Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now, about a year ago, I interviewed Matt Hewitt, who at the time was running Pro Snooker Blog and was just about to start work for the WPBSA as their media officer. So a year on, we caught up to see what he'd been up to, what's been going on and what is ahead at the WPBSA. Well, Matt, last time we spoke, you'd literally just been announced as a WPSA media officer. It wasn't quite clear then exactly what your, your duties were. So just tell us about the year that's gone by and, and how it's gone for you. Hi, Dave. Yeah, uh, it's gone so quickly. I can't believe it's over a year ago since um, I, I joined the dark side, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's um, obviously my title is WPBSA media officer, um, but I'm responsible for the website um, and the other media that the WPBSA are putting out. I think the main thing to remember is that there is a key difference between the WPBSA and World Snooker, which I think even now is still lost a bit to the... um well, even to some within the game, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, because it, well, it always used to be that the WPBSA was the governing body, and that was it. But obviously, as you say, now it has been separated. Just explain what the separation is. Well, in respect of uh, World Snooker, the, the body that perhaps most people recognise... Uh, they're obviously the commercial arm um, of the outfit, so their responsibility to put the tournaments on, sell the tickets, promote the players. That that side, they're the side that um, the general public will perhaps associate. Mm-hmm. Um, the WPBSA, on the other hand, is the sort of world-governing body, not just for snooker, but for billiards as well. Um, and we're responsible for, well, the players, the main tour players, but also sports development and the, the grassroots side of the game from the ladies' game, the disability side, um, the amateur game in England, it all falls under our remit. Yeah, they're all they're all sort of constituent parts of the sport. They're sort of not the glamour parts, I guess, because the glamour parts are the, the professional game on television. But it's all part of the same story, isn't it? And with that, you know, you need you need it all. So let's just go through some of them. It's the WPBSA, the B stands for billiards, of course. Um, the forerunner of snooker, Rex Williams once told me, there's no such thing as a snooker table. So they're all billiard tables. Um, we won't argue that point right now. But billiards, of course, is, is never going to be as, as big as snooker, but uh, it's important to keep the traditions going. And as I say, it's part of the WPBSA. The, the B is for billiards. Absolutely. Um, we recently had this year's World Championships at the Northern Snooker Centre in Leeds, and it was a great success. Uh, for the first time ever, we ran a 100-up format mm. in addition to the main timed format. Both were street. Well, the latter stages of both were streamed by YouTube, which was very successful. We had uh, your very own Clive Everton yeah. came over to do the commentary, uh, and it was very well received. The track was very good, and it's something that we'd hope to do again in the future. Um, it's going to continue. Obviously, the new season will kick off, um, and you know, it's something that, over the last few years, perhaps it's slightly out of the public eye, but it, the Billiards Tour has developed into a sustainable, strong tour, which receives... Great, great entries in terms of uh, players. Um, and as I say, perhaps surprisingly to snooker fans, it's it's really doing very well at the moment. I suppose you have to be realistic, don't you? And 
you know, it's never going to be like snooker 19 tournaments on TV a year. It has to, you have to find the, the sort of right level. And as you say, the streaming, I think, was significant because that several thousand people watched that. And it may be something that people would stumble across on YouTube and maybe possibly sort of quite like. Yeah, it's, I mean, even myself, I mean, it's no secret that I'm not from a billiards background. I'm a snooker fan first and foremost, but it was interesting for me to watch the streaming and particularly who better to do it, the, the commentary yes. than Clive and yeah. to um, explain the game, the principles of the game and the, um, yeah, the, the nuances that... It, once you understand them, um, you realise just how skilled those players are. Mm. Let's talk about the women's game. Um, recently had the, the women's uh, Masters that Rianne Evans won. Again, you know, it's about being realistic. The women's game, because there isn't the no- strength in numbers, is not going to rival the men's game in terms of popularity. But everyone's doing their best to try and promote it as much as they can. Yeah, and I think it's come a long way in the, over the last couple of years with the support of the WPBSA. From the start of from December 2015, it was announced that the WPBSA were going to play a stronger role um, and provide greater assistance to the um, World Ladies Tour. Um, of, part of that is myself. I've been to all of the events over the last 12 months. It's been interesting for me to meet the key personalities, see the, um, the, the players in action and to hopefully put the, um, put the sport on the map. And the World Championship... The Women's World Challenge is going to Singapore in March, which is a sort of different direction. Yes, um, it would be a different direction for me. <laughs> you're going there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, as you're aware, previously, uh, well, perhaps go on to this, but perhaps the um, before I'd taken this job, I've never left the UK, whereas mm-hmm. now I've uh, been globetrotting a bit, but not to the extent of Singapore. So that'll be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as far as the sport is concerned, um, it's a new location. We're going to have a, a very glamorous uh, pre-reception party at the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. Very nice. It's very uh, spectacular, so that should be mm. very good. Um, and then, yes, the tournament lasts for a week. Um, Rianne, Rianne Evans, Michelle will be there to see if she can make it title number 12. Mm. Um, yeah, she, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for Rianne in a way. I mean, obviously she's not, not sorry that she's winning all these world titles, but... It's where she goes from there. She has tried to... I mean, it's not, we should say it's not a men's tour, the, the professional tour. It's a professional tour. Women have played on it before. In fact, Rianne's played on it before. But you almost feel like, apart from just keep on winning, she can't actually do any more in the women's game. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the money isn't great, is it, at the moment? I mean, it's going up a bit, but it's not, it's not sort of necessarily a great living. So it's hard to see where she goes. She's almost in limbo. She's like queen of her sport... Not maybe not quite at the level required though to be a professional. It's a difficult one. There's there's no easy answer. Mm. The only um, the only thing we can do is to continue to grow the game, and you know, by the time that we are, the, the prize money is up to a stronger level. Then she will still be around to benefit from that. Um, she, as you say, she set every record. She's won more world titles than anybody else, more UK titles than anybody else. She's been number one for. A long time. She will be back at Ponds Falls this year to have another crack. Obviously, she was Ken Doherty close two yeah. years ago, ten eight. Um, it'll be interesting to see what she can do again. I guess the important thing for all these things, the women's game as well, is participation at the grassroots and encouraging. Because I mean, it, it, traditionally in Britain, snooker clubs go back maybe thirty years. They're not the sort of places you would have taken your daughter. A lot of them, not the sort of places you'd have taken your son, frankly. Um, <laughs> And it's getting that um, sort of fixed idea people have, oh, no, yeah, I wouldn't let my daughter go to a snooker club, and actually maybe 
to explain to them that times have changed. Yeah, it's really encouraging because we did have, uh, at the last event, the Masters last weekend in Derby, we had eight entries into the <coughs> under-21 competition, which is a good improvement on what we've had recently. Mm. Um, obviously, we want that number to keep growing, but um, there are young, young girls, young women who are interested in the game and who are encouraged by the, the, uh, the events that we are putting on. All we can do um, for our new initiatives, which uh, we'll come on to later, I'm sure, is to help to provide the environment and the facilities to allow these to allow women, disabled players, um, and all amateurs to enjoy the game of snooker. Yeah, well, you mentioned the disability snooker, which I know has been a big thing for, for Jason Ferguson, the chairman. Uh, just explain what's been happening with that. There's been quite a few events already. Yeah, we uh, we were the WDBS World Disability Billiards and Snooker set up in the summer of 2015. Since then, there's been events in Gloucester, Manchester, Woking, Hull, my my home city. Yeah. <laughs> Get that one in. Yeah. Um, city of culture. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they've all gone very well. Uh, in particular, Gloucester from 2015 to 2016, the entries have doubled. Uh, we've had pieces on. At the BBC on the main coverage during the uh, coverage of the UK Championship recently, but those events have been so much fun to attend. I've been to them all so far, and the there's just a special atmosphere about those events. The people um, involved, there's some great people involved, uh, some great players involved. Um, we spoke about the billiards earlier. Raja Subramanian, mm. um, he's a player who has won our Gloucester event in his category for two years in a row, but he also competed in the World Billiards Championship. It, one of the things that has really come out of the disability side is that we've seen players not only become players, but become role models. Mm. They've started to venture into the world of coaching. We've had um, a couple of guys, Steve Packer and Mark Parsons, in the Q-Zone here at the Masters this week. Um, we've had players becoming referees, players helping at other events in different categories. So there's a real community growing there. Just explain how it works, though, because obviously disability is quite a broad term, and people have dif- different disabilities. So, I guess there's lots of different categories, are there? Yeah, there's a very um, there's a very big classification system. It's approximately forty uh, classification profiles, but we break these down into eight groups, which loosely termed are physical disabilities, learning disabilities, and sensory disabilities. So far, we've had events um, for physical disabilities. Then we've had events for sensory disabilities separately, but we're looking into um, mixing and matching a bit more and just seeing what works at the moment. Because mm. it's important because when Jason came on the podcast, he spoke a lot about the Olympics, but of course it, there's also the Paralympics, and sports governing bodies have to be seen to be making an effort for disabled athletes as well. So it all ties into the, I guess, the same sort of end goal in a way. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I didn't realise this before I became involved, but the uh, snooker was a founding sport of the Paralympics, yeah. um, and it remained there until 1988. Yeah. So um, we've got pedigree there, and it's you know what we will be back one day. It's just going to take time to. Obviously, we have the the events that have been successful, but we just need a bit more support, perhaps um, commercially, to take it to the next level, which we're currently working on. Sure. Well, another important part of grassroots is coaching. Um, what can you tell us about the, the, the? There's been a new coaching program launched. Yeah, um, so obviously for the last few years we've had the, um, the coaching programmes that we've got. Um, Head of Coaching Chris Lovell's played a great part in that. Um, but to bring us into line with other sports, we're now moving to an accredited coaching scheme uh, with the assistance of First for Sport. The aim of this is that it's not just a case of potential coaches completing a course, then qualifying, but 
going forward, um, further announcement, uh, further announcement will come in due course. But it's more about having external bodies involved, and it's more about a structured process that will bring us into line with other sports, and um, it, it will it will just provide a more structured. Um, coaching setup in this country and, and beyond in the world. Seems to me with a lot of these things, it's there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes that people kind of don't see. Um, obviously, you're, you're involved in that. Maybe you can tell us a bit about Jason and his work ethic, which seems very strong. I mean, he always seems to be travelling somewhere, meeting somebody, trying to do the groundwork for a lot of these things. Um, a lot of it comes from, I guess, personal introductions and, and meeting people, taking the time to sit down and then formulate all the plans, which he seems to enjoy doing. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, his air miles must be spectacular. <laughs> um, he's in one country from one day to the next. The, the work he puts in is absolutely incredible. Um, you only see a snapshot of that otherwise on the tour, but he's, he's flying to China, to Switzerland, to Rome. To he, He's been everywhere, mm. and um, I couldn't speak highly enough of the work that he puts in. Not just because he's my boss. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, um, obviously he's very good at that. He's very... Um, he, he, he loves the sport more than anyone I know. Um, even more than myself, dare I say it. <laughs> Which is very unusual. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, he, he's played an incredible role in the development of the sport. And we, we have targets as to where we want the sport to be. And if anyone can do it, he can do it. One thing that obviously helps is funding for grassroots, um, and there's been a new... Tell us about this new English partnership that's been launched. The English partnership for snooker and billiards is an umbrella organisation which was formed earlier last year, and it brings together the key stakeholders from the bodies that we've spoken about already, so the ladies' game, the disability side, the billiards side, the English amateur side, and it's all about just making sure that their voices are heard and effectively working towards the goal of increased participation, increased uh, improved facilities uh, in this country. Um, obviously, at the moment, we have a world we have a main tour full of players, and a number of English players are on there, but in 20 years' time, we need to make sure that there are more players on there. Mm. Um, one, of, one of the problems, seems to me, is that a lot of the funding... I mean, British, British sport is well-funded, but... It's, it's targeted at, at Olympic sports because the, the end goal seems to be medals, and that's worked. You know, we looked at Rio, obviously London 2012. Snooker's not in the Olympics, so does it suffer? Do you think because of that, and also because you know because of various people's prejudice, a lot of people don't see it as a sport. Yeah, Jason would be the first to tell you that we are at a distinct disadvantage mm. compared to other sports. Um, we don't get <laughs> the funding that they do, um, and it, it's about time we got our first share. Mm. Um, as part of this process, we have recently um, prepared proposals to Sport England. For pro we've submitted a bid for funding for projects such as for the over 55s, for women players, for disability players, and we're optimistic that this will um, be the first step towards getting our first share of the uh, of the of the pot. It seems like a long process, though. I mean, like I say, you have to lay all the groundwork and, and, and do all the work. I mean, how hopeful are you that this this funding will actually come through? Well, we've put the groundwork in over the last two or three years now. We've formed the English partnership. It's still, obviously, we're still working working on it and putting the, the procedures in place. Um, part of that is the national governing body status. That's historically has been part of the English Amateur Association. We're currently in the process of 
hoping hopefully transferring this 2D PSB itself, which will again allow us to um, represent all of the interested stakeholders in the sport in this country. We we were aware of the challenges that exist and that are there in front of us, but regardless of the um, the response that we received from Sport England to this particular bid, uh, we're optimistic that we've put the, the procedures in place, that the right people are now involved and that we will get there. OK. Well, in terms of the Olympics, um, the, we've got the World Games coming up in Poland. Now, that's... It's basically it's called sort of the Olympics for sports, not in the Olympics. There's all sorts of there's all sorts of things in there. I always remember dragon boat racing. I saw once list, listed and corf ball and all these sort of things. But Q Sports are in there. I guess that's an. Imp- I mean, it's been they've been in there for for some time actually. I think Nigel Bond won a gold. Gerald Green won a gold. Um, and they sort of got their little time on the podium. I remember Nigel saying he, they stood up and they played the national anthem. But I guess it's a sort of showcase, isn't it, to, to show people that actually, you know, these these are really popular sports. Yeah, it's a crucial. Um, <clears throat> it's crucial that as a sport we are involved in these multi uh, multi sport games. Uh, the first time snooker was involved was in two thousand and one. Not just snooker, but also um, pool and um, and billiards, carom billiards. Um, and it's an absolutely vital showcase. It's, it's our time to shine, and it will be really interesting to see um, what we can do. I'll hopefully be going to the event, and it will be interesting to see what um, how we are received. Um, but it will be fantastic to see us take our stage, uh, place on the stage, and it's a key part of hopefully one day making it back to the well, making it to the Olympics and back to the Paralympics. That first one in 2001, uh, Laurie Annandale, who's one of the best referees uh, for a long time, he went out there to officiate, and because uh, a couple of the snooker players had withdrawn, he ended up playing in it. Uh, I mean, Laurie, Laurie, was, Laurie was part of the Stephen Hendry in sort of Scottish amateur events, so he was a good player in his day, but he wasn't expecting to uh, to end up competing. But I think it's become a little bit more sort of professional <laughs> since then, and like you say, it's important to just showcase the sport. And this, I guess, comes down to a lot of people, I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan said it, would say that snooker doesn't need to be in the Olympics. You know, we've got the World Championship, that is the, the pinnacle, nothing's going to beat it. I guess the counter-argument to that is, though, if you're in the Olympics, it is a worldwide showcase for the sport and could only attract more interest. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a difficult... Obviously, it's not a snooker where we have this debate. Golf, tennis, people will say, debate whether they should be in the Olympics. But certainly, if they're in the Olympics, there's no reason why snooker shouldn't be. Mm. It's... Um, it's not about picking up other sports, but um, the participation levels that we have, the viewing figures that we have, um, there's no reason why we should not be in there. Mm. It's just a case of putting the the, the procedure, the, the the basis there, um, so that we can make a structured bid. Um, we recently submitted a bid for the upcoming 2020 games. Um, we came very close, but hopefully, with what we're doing now with the grassroots. Uh, sport development initiatives that we have, hopefully we'll go one better in the future. Yeah, it's a great shame, I think, that all this wasn't done years ago, because obviously um, host countries can basically duck their own sports into the Olympics, and they get two choices, don't they? And, you know, we look at Beijing, uh, where China's such a big snooker country, and then obviously London, you know, British sport and all that. Unfortunately, those chances were missed, but... Hopefully, in the future, things will change. Let's talk a bit about you, Matt, because, um, mm. as you say, when you when you took this job, you'd never been abroad. Now you're sort of basically snookers Michael Palin. You're, you're going, <laughs> you're travelling everywhere. I mean, the first, I think the first one you went to was Gdynia. So what was that like as an experience? Yeah, I really enjoyed it, actually. It's, it was quite a strange experience, because being from Hull myself, which is quite a, a port town, um, mm. 
Gdynia was actually very similar, so it was right. a bit of a home from home, to be honest. Mm. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, and since then, I've been to uh, re stop in Dublin, and then obviously uh, the Poland's, Cla- Poland's Classic last year in Germany in Furt, mm. um, which was a lot hotter than Gdynia, I can tell you that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been an amazing experience. Um, it, it's hard to think a couple of years ago, I would never have imagined that I would have done half the things I would have done now, mm. but it's only the beginning as well. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you obviously started coming to Snooker as a spectator, you actually paid your own money, unbelievably, to, to buy tickets. Then you sort of came into the media room as, as, a, as a blogger. Now you're coming to tournaments uh, as an official. Um, quite a meteoric rise, really. Yeah, I do, have to, <laughs> I do have to pinch myself sometimes. It's very bizarre. Chairman this time next yeah. year, the way it's going. Don't tell Jason that. <laughs> um, no, it's very... Um, it, it, it's ridiculous, really, to be honest, to think of it. When uh, I think of... Coming to the Crucible for the first time in 2005, stood outside at um, stage door waiting for Ken Doherty, who was one of my heroes growing up, looking to get his autograph, and then um, this week sat around a table having meetings with him. It's, mm. it's a very, um, uh, as I say, I do have to pinch myself, but I like to think that enthusiasm breeds interest and is, is infectious, really, and um, without wanting to blow me on trumpet, I think I work hard and... Um, oh, blow it. No one else will. Blow your own trumpet. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I like to think I've worked hard, and you know, I, hopefully this, this is just the beginning. I'm um, just at the start of a long, uh, a long journey here with the WPBSA. But uh, do you have to be careful? I mean, you, you're never one on Twitter to sort of mouth off about things, but do you, you have to, you're now being employed by WPBSA. Do you have to sort of be a bit careful in terms of giving opinions and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah I think that's natural. Mm. Um, I mean, nobody, everyone has been brilliant with me. Nobody said, don't say this, don't mm. say that. It's not really been like that, but just, it's almost self filtering. Yeah. Myself, I'm aware, as you say beforehand, I was never the most controversial of bloggers. Mm. And um, obviously, that's not going to change now. No. But um, I, I've not found that to be a problem. It's, I think the thing that is really interesting about this role is that most people would assume that the main tour, obviously, being the main tour, is the most. Um, challenging part perhaps because of the what is at stake for the mm. players but in many ways I've been doing that for 10 years already so that mm. is the easiest part the real interesting challenge is uh, these, the, the sport development projects that we're doing and I've learned so much over the last year and um, it, it's only going to, going to get better in the future Do you miss the old blog though doing, doing the old blog? I mean I know you do it in a different way now but yeah. uh, do you miss the, I guess the independence that you had? Not as much as I thought I would right. have done perhaps because I think the snooker landscape has changed. Mm. Five or six years ago, there were a lot more politics in the sport. Um, <laughs> That's one way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, understatement of the year. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, seven or eight years ago, perhaps more, probably more accurate. But um, I feel I was very lucky, and it was it was not so much it was not something that was planned. But I set up my blog at the same time as you, a couple mm. of years after yourself. But at one of the most interesting periods in the sport's history. The growth that we have seen, the changes that we have seen, we've moved from six or seven events a year to several events. We've had a ranking list change to a rolling ranking list, money list, uh, flat one to eight draws. The the changes that we've had have been um, groundbreaking to the sport. And to be blogging (coughs) as an independent blogger during that time was fantastic. But perhaps now the the, the call for that isn't there. Mm. I, I feel the the blogging landscape has changed a little bit. Perhaps it's it seems to have settled down the tour 
obviously things are still going to change this year. We've got the um, the Home Nations, which has returned, which has been a great success. Um, but perhaps the, the the most radical changes that have been brought in have, have been and gone now. And yeah, and, but also, I mean, I think back to when I used to do my blog. You know, you would have like three weeks between tournaments to sort of think of things to say. There's not time now, really. One tournament finishes, that's it. You move on to the next one. There's no time to sort of reflect on on anything. And I'm not sure there's, there's the hours in the day really to, to, to uh, sort of maintain a, a blog to the level that we used to. I remember, for example, at the qualifiers back in Pontins, you would have the the I don't know, the Bahrain Championship qualifiers. And I would write mm. n- not just daily updates, but <laughs> session updates. <laughs> I had so much time on my hands. Yeah. I would write free updates, like every ma- every match, yes. every score. And now it, you can't even get a, ma- a tournament preview. In. <laughs> it's it's challenging, but it's all positive in a good way. Yeah. The rankings, of course, is something you keep on, on top of, and there's a lot of races um, that we need to know about. Uh, the, the main one, I guess, for most people will be the, the Crucible, because it obviously it's such a, a massive difference being in the top 16 and, and not being in the top 16. But there are others as well. Tour Survival is, is, is a big one. I wanted to mention Ken Doherty, um, mm. who's been a pro since 89, um, 89 90. Uh, he's in trouble. Definitely, yeah. And I don't like, as I, say, as mm. I said earlier on, he was one of my heroes growing up, yeah. so... I don't say that lightly, but just to explain how the tour survival works, perhaps it's not the most um, it's not the most publicised system. But the top sixty-four all stay on the team on the main tour for a further year on a one-year card. This year, it's a bit it's changed up a little bit. Previously, eight tour cards were allocated on the basis of the European order of merit. This year, with the European tour no longer in existence, those places will go to the top eight players on a one-year ranking list, not already within the sixty-four. So getting out of the way, yeah. <laughs> the two key methods by which players can stay on tour, and at the moment, Ken Doherty's outside of where he needs to be on both lists, so it's not sensationalist, he is he's very much at risk. That's not to say that can't change, however. Mm. This is not your area, but there's also, there are these wildcard, uh, I mean, Steve Davis had one, James Watanar, I think Ken would be a pretty outstanding candidate for one, I know you can't sort of say the way, but that could be an option as well. Yeah, no reason why not. Mm. Um, as you say, it's not not my department, but um, as a world champion, you would have a, a strong claim, I would imagine. Yeah, the race to the World Grand Prix. I mean, that's sort of complicated by Germany that's coming up because literally Germany finishes on the Sunday and that starts on the Monday. So there could be someone who wins the German Masters that gets into that. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a tight turnaround for somebody there, perhaps. But it's the final event. Just to explain, the World Grand Prix qualifying list is based upon a one-year system. So all points earned from the start of this season in Riga up to the conclusion of the German Masters, um, or prize money rather, will count towards uh, qualification with the top 32 making it. It's interesting because the field at the moment as it stands is looking very strong. Um, Of the top 20, only one of those players, Martin Gould, is currently set to miss out, although he's the defending champion in Germany and will be looking to um, break back into that bracket. What's also interesting is that we've got a few of the players such as Yu Delu, Yang Bing Tao, Wu Yulong, um, so the young Chinese talent that are beginning to emerge who, OK, on the main ranking list they're still a bit further down, but on the one-year list they're right up there. Mm. We've also got Shootout, which is now a ranking event, and regardless of the rights or wrongs of that, which has been debated on this podcast and elsewhere, it's a chance for someone there, possibly, to get to the Crucible. I mean, 32,000 to the winner. You know, that's, that could be a big leap if you're sort of... 2021 in the world of Dave Gilbert something like that mm. that could get you to Sheffield yeah definitely look at Robin Hull last year mm. had he 
had it been a ranking event then, then he would have been uh, boosted significantly up the rankings. It's a real chance for somebody. I think I'm right in saying that nobody inside the top 16 has won the shootout yeah, yet. It yeah. uh, could be a real opportunity for someone to make a mark, regardless of the rights and wrongs. Mm. Let's just go back to your role then at the WPB. Because, I mean, I briefly was... was was worked for them many years ago. I don't talk about it much, but um, and it, when I, whenever I went to meetings, then they were always dominated by politics. So the thing that you were supposed to be discussing, you weren't because something had happened and something in the paper, or whatever. That's gone now. So wh- wh- how do these sort of how do these sort of meetings go? Are they, are they sort of long affairs? Or how sort of democratic are they? I would say they are long affairs in so much as we've got a lot going on at the mm. moment. Um, but in terms of politics, there's. I've not experienced any of anything of that side. Mm. On the board, we have Jason Ferguson, who we've spoken about already in his little introduction. Um, Nigel Moore is the vice chairman. Um, he plays a huge role in respect of the disability side, the governance side. Um, and then we have Jan Verhas, obviously, who is yeah. recently appointed. It's been it's been a year of uh, unexpected election victories, and that was one of them. I mean, Jan, because Jan, the great guy, Jan. But I think a few years ago, he wouldn't be an outstanding sort of candidate as a politician he wouldn't necessarily put himself forward but he has done and he's going to look after the, the sort of refereeing aspects I'm sure he'll be a bit more popular than some of the uh, victors we've seen recently but he's got a huge role to play um, and working with him we can publicise how people can become referees um, we couldn't do it without them and <laughs> as uh, Rob Walker always says <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just in the UK and mm. yeah, obviously he's not from the UK so we can um there's a huge part to play in attracting new referees to the sport. We've seen a number of them over the last few years at European Tour events. Um, many of those now are still continuing to be involved. Um, and it's going to be exciting to see what he can bring to the um, to the party. Players Forum uh, is another sort of side part of this. And you hear sometimes, I mean, players, uh, some players anyway... Um, will tell you that, oh, there's no point going to that, no one will listen. But it is there for them, isn't it? I mean, that's the idea, that's their sort of forum to go and air grievances? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, changes maybe a foot on that front in terms mm. of how the, um, the the forum works going forward, which will probably be, um, you know, decided over the next few um, weeks by the time this podcast is, is made mm. available. But, um, yeah, in principle, the players' forum exists for the players to meet, to put their views together and to communicate these to the board then Jason's job he's not only chairman of the WPBSA but he's on the world snooker board as well he's there to represent the WPBSA and uh, ultimately to represent our players Mm. so if the players do get together and communicate through the right channels then there's no reason that their views won't be heard in terms of the right channels um, you know we, we, we see a lot on Twitter at the moment and it's great to see the players personalities on Twitter and social media in general but it's also important that certain things perhaps are communicated the right way. I guess though to defend the players for a minute a lot of them would say okay we can go to the players forum, we can put our, all our points to Jason but the sport is run by Barry Hearn and Barry, what Barry says goes, I mean this shootout thing, he's one of the very few people I've met who actually thinks it's a good idea so they might say well yeah we can go through all these channels but if Barry says it's going to be like this, it's like this I guess that's the. Um, <laughs> it's a fair point, but there are changes that have come about as a result of the players' forum. For example, some of the draw structures we've seen this season at one to eight events um, have moved more towards a tennis system. Mm. So where you've had, I think, the German Masters, the European Masters, you've had the top thirty-two seeded, everyone else sort of in at random. Mm. It's 
perhaps not being publicised widely, but that was as a result of a suggestion by the Players' Forum. So it's not a case that the Players' Forum are ignored. Um, Barry does listen to them, and th- there is evidence that they can make a difference. And what is the general sort of relationship like between World Snooker and the WPBSA? Because I think Barry's attitude is, it's not that he doesn't care about all the things we talked about, but he's very much focused on the commercial aspects of professional snooker, and he's happy to leave all of this to Jason. But how do the two sides sort of work together? Very well. I mean, from my perspective, we have, uh, I work with Ivan, um, who is the press officer for, the, for World Snooker. He's... Um, Obviously, he's sort of my contemporary there. He's been there a lot longer, longer than I have. But he's been there forever. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't aged. No, no. no. <laughs> but, um, you know, we work very well together. We liaise together. Um, whenever there's a ranking question, Welt and Luca will come to me. Whenever I need one of our projects, mm. given a bit of a leg up, I will go to Ivan. So there's great synergy there. And um, in terms of the boardroom, um, Jason represents our interests very strongly, very robustly. And... Um, from what, from everything I've seen, um, both bodies appear to work very well together. Okay, so a year on then from making the move, you're glad you did it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very different life, but um, well, I, I say it's very different. It's it's kind of not, but it's um, it's the other side though. You're on, I guess. Yeah. You're looking at it from the other other point of view. Actually, you're now inside the governing body. Yeah. You see how it all works. Exactly. It's the. I, th- I think it's. I don't know if it's unique, but it's as you described earlier. I've been fan, spectator, mm-hmm. watching on TV, to going to venues, to blogging, to I've seen it from all sides. So I, I like to think I bring that to the party that I've. When I can think of the spectator's point of view, I can think of the players' point of view. I've got a good relationship with many of the players, mm-hmm. and um, it's, it's it's been an incredible journey. But as I say, it's it's only just the beginning, and it's exciting to think where we're going to be one year, five years from now. Okay, Matt, well, thank you, and uh, we'll talk again in a year when you're chairman. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell Jason that. (laughs) Cheers. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network.